Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. First and foremost, everyone, thank you for joining us today for WCAP Cybersecurity Emerging Technologies Working Group webinar titled Digital Threats to Democracy countering online disinformation and white nationalism. Really appreciate all of you joining us to listen to this important topic, particularly the week before election day, because there's so much happening. And uh, and also this is going to impact not only going to occur for election day itself, but also for midterm elections and other activities thereafter, because there's greater implications. Uh, moving forward. Now, I'd like to introduce and pass it over to Sean Shank, who is our uh, chair for the Election Security Subworking Group, and who kindly put together this great presentation and webinar for us today. Sean, over to you. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Um, and just to confirm, can everybody hear me clearly? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Great. Well, thank you very much. One thing I wanted to call out before I get started here is that uh, as we approach election day, I realize we're not necessarily going with an explicit partisan angle here. That's not even helpful for this particular purpose anyway. But I do want to note that uh, there's a quote that's, that I've heard that uh, has really stuck with me over the past few days. And uh, when I heard uh, Stacey Abrams say this, it, it reminds me of times that uh, of conversations that I've had around times like this in our history where, where uh, for whatever reason, the conditions in this country are particularly fractious. My father and I have, have joked about being pessimistic optimists. And uh, her statement that I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic, I determined, really resonated with me. That was a much more, uh, that was on the money far, far better than anything I could hope to articulate myself. So with that in mind, um, I do want to go ahead and start with another uh, scope note as well for this particular presentation. What we're focused on here is disinformation and not purely tech. And so while we do talk about election security, we're not going to be talking necessarily about specific vote-related machines and what vulnerabilities they might have, whether they have uh, backdoor access or, or sort of wireless access enabled. Although I, I do think that there is uh, some reasonable basis for concern there and, and is worth uh, looking into remedying. Here, again, because we're focused on disinformation, that speaks to uh, the threat environment more broadly. And when I say the threat environment, I don't necessarily just mean hacking attempts or anything like that. What I do mean also refers to sort of, it, it can be some interaction with real world sort of physical space activities. So in that case, um, the scope for this is going to be fairly broad and not necessarily as technical as you might otherwise think, given the cyber part of uh, CETWG. Part one, we're going to focus on the current 2020 election and part two, because uh, whether or not uh, there's one result or another, uh, there are going to be a lot of items that uh, engaged citizens will have to address on behalf of people who wish to advance peace and security, people who wish to advance communities of color, people who want to be allies or who are themselves women of color, and uh, want to know that their voice is going to be reflected in improving society. So again, uh, the issues associated with an increasingly vocal and threatening white nationalism will uh, not be solved by one election. So with that, 2016 issues 
that we've identified before with, we've discussed on calls like this, uh, that we have dressed in other parts of our lives. Those things persist. There's new information in car, uh, that, that has, or relatively, it's not new now, but as it has been reported in the past few months regarding uh, the highlighted uh, targeting of black voters in the U.S., including in Miami-Dade County, which is a uh, pivotal county for determining Florida's votes. And this was an effort to seek to discourage participation. Um, we also see more information about overseas intelligence services and proxies. Maybe the United States uh, audience in general is getting better at handling those issues. Perhaps the press is still too quick to, impl- uh, to amplify some of those information operations, whether inadvertently or not. Uh, we also see new or worsening problems, such as motivated white nationalist groups organizing in the physical world, as well as online. We'll cover this more, of course, in part two as well, since, again, one election does not necessarily remedy the problems that we've highlighted. Finally, uh, there are also going to be threats to votes and organizers, online mouthpieces who uh, help to fuel those threats, and whether federal institutions and their leadership at this time are remedying the problem, worsening it, or just turning a blind eye. To get more into the background on the 2020 election environment, we're looking at questions of targeting in 2016 versus 2020. So I'll try not to, sh- to just read off the slide. And if folks, you have questions, please do feel free to interject. Sean, real quick, um, I'm not sure if you went over, but can you quickly define Tekint? Ah, yes. Okay. So thank you for that. Tekint, for me, uh, coming from the cyber threat intelligence background, uh, that's even more technical than just being a cyber threat intel analyst. A lot of what I do personally is more strategic level stuff where we look at, for example, geopolitical motivations for the threat actors and whether a certain hacking operation, for example, might align with the motivations of a political group, a nation state, whatever that might be. Tekint gets more into details about uh, what you might find at a more granular level. Say, if you know of an institution that's been infected with a particular type of malware, what does that code tell us? So that's something that might be more granular than this discussion. Here, we can learn a lot about how, uh, or, or we could go on and talk a great deal about how malware is passed around and uh, code overlaps and things like that. And it, it could be a very helpful discussion uh, further down the road. But stuff at that level of a, or that at such a granular level does not necessarily speak to the uh, social and white supremacy related issues. So that's, that's my lengthy answer there. Thank you. So going further down the list here, we note that Cambridge Analytica, excuse me, that it should be Analytica. I, here I've, I've fluctuated between some title case and some not. So I do apologize for that. But uh, Cambridge Analytica, again, did play a role. I know that this has been debated and, and uh, confronted with a lot of whataboutism from critics. But there was far more detail showing that parties involved or suspected of involvement knew what they were doing, that Black voters in swing states and districts were targeted not necessarily to change their vote, but quite simply to deter them, make sure that they felt disaffected, saw information that that gave them the impression that their vote does not matter. Some of the lowlights from that approach to the electoral process have been recycled. It's still happening today. And I know that for this and many other issues, I, I am very well preaching to them. We do see continued use of bot accounts that just have stock photos, pretty shameless stuff like that, just uh, having generic messaging that co-ops themes relevant to Black women voters, as well as a number of other progressive groups, persons, causes, key players. Now here, if you go on Twitter, you'll obviously see a lot of predictable stuff that in response to someone who's simply trolling, which will happen, obviously, it's the open internet saying, oh, well, that's a Russian bot. It's a little more complicated than that. There still is substantial intelligence to support uh, Russia as being the most aggressive and disruptive. And there are some, of course, questions as to whether the public has developed so-called antibodies as to how they consume their news, how they consume social media. 
But nevertheless, uh, there is still reason to believe credible intelligence to support the idea that Russia is the most aggressive. You have parties like Iran and China where there's mixed intelligence about how much involvement they're engaged in as well. You do see a very hasty conclusion being published or, or sort of claimed by the DNI, uh, Mr. Radcliffe, saying that Iran uh, was imitating the Proud Boys and sending those two Democratic voters to, to intimidate them. By contrast, you also have China, which does not quite do the same thing, does not take the same approach that you might suspect Russia of. Um, instead of selling disinformation that speaks more directly to candidates, one thing that you might see from China is that you'll see um, very consistent, rigorous efforts by accounts, uh, whether authentic or not, to go ahead and burnish the image of the Chinese government to suggest that, well, hey, um, even though governments aren't perfect, we're also the victim of cyber attacks. We're also the victims of disinformation. And we really just want a more harmonious international order. Um, whether we agree with that or not, that is more in line with uh, the Chinese government-backed approach, arguably more subtle than what we commonly associate with Russia. So again, there are inauthentic accounts, nevertheless, regardless of who you attribute them to, some may be Russia-backed, and they imitate Black voters to discredit peaceful protests, capitalize on misogynoir, especially when, uh, for one of the major parties, the vice presidential candidate is Kamala, Kamala Harris. And uh, while this is less cyber, you have still a pretty irksome role played by robocallers. That's still a thing. I don't place as much, perhaps, I, I don't give as much credence to the extent of the threat that that poses, but it still can confuse people who, in good faith, just want to figure out how they're supposed to vote. Solutions here. This is meant to be a more high-level discussion. And toward the end of the presentation in total, we can discuss this. But to me, this is a question of identifying the most immediate challenges. Part of this is challenging the information platforms themselves, social media platforms particularly, seem to be applying band-aids, Twitter, Facebook, labeling state-sponsored media. Eh, it seems like a nice idea. Labeling something that, that is uh, disinformation related to the vote. When you have social media platforms that are trying their best to limit the flow of disinformation, there's some concern that other parties acting in bad faith might might try and achieve a sort of Barbara Streisand effect for those those of you familiar with it. If not, you know, we can clarify that later. The bottom line here is that it may actually inadvertently amplify some problems. That begs another question. Are these platforms inherently too powerful? Are there alternatives that we need to cultivate? Should we deplatform ourselves? What's the approach? Do we push for legislation? Additionally, because there is such an intersection between the problems on social media and voting rights themselves, there are real-world solutions that go beyond the more conventional cyber scope to talk about a new, stronger voting rights act. One that actually empowers people to get to the polls. One that empowers them when it's for issues not related uh, to just election day. There's also a look at what judges are doing to enhance or take away from these. With that in mind, this is where the wider scope of the presentation that I had in mind sort of comes into play. Physical real-world action during election season and beyond is a necessity. Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But challenging white supremacy and patriarchy in our institutions, I, I'm not necessarily going to try and call out specific federal agencies, but that's companies, that's government agencies at the federal, state, and local levels. It's who enforces our laws. And it's also about holding the so-called good guys. I, myself, I, I'd like to, to be careful when I use the term ally just because it's more concise here. Uh, I would consider myself a would-be or, or someone who is aspiring to be an ally, but you know, we shouldn't be allergic to the idea of being held accountable. If we screw up, if we use the wrong terminology, if we make larger mistakes, or if we're looking at holding folks accountable who run these large institutions, we have to be ready to push.
Or if we know somebody who is that ally, then we have to accept the fact that they might not always be in the right. Finally, solidarity is a big thing as well. When we talk about issues that we're seeing here at home, for those of us who have the privilege to address not just the things in our own backyard, so to speak, but can also see what's going on with law enforcement and justice in places like Nigeria, the SARS protests highlight the need for solidarity. So just some thoughts that I wanted to share there. And solutions, obviously, uh, with most immediate challenges, that speaks to getting out to vote. It is incredible to me. Again, I will be very careful not to talk about this in terms of just pure ideology or, or partisan alignment. But it is incredible to me that in 2020, in a, a country that touts itself as an advanced democracy, has problems that are this widespread regarding getting out to vote. There are parties such as I Will Vote, the New Georgia Project, and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. One person who comes to mind is Kristen Clark, who's been, to me, a shining example of, of getting the right information for and, and representing people in need of the ability to vote. So some good things to highlight there in 866-OUR-VOTE. I will vote or actually get examples of things that, that you might want to share with people you know who encounter some difficulties getting their vote cast. For those of us, again, who, who are or who want to be allies, I know that that's not everybody in the room, but for those of us who are, we have to engage, we have to understand and don't lecture folks who might just feel like they're disaffected. There's a way to encourage participation in this system and to inform without saying, well, you didn't participate the way I wanted, or you're not participating the way I wanted, or you, you seem dejected despite all these bad things. You know, what's wrong with you? Particularly for white guys like me who want to see a certain outcome, this is the wrong way to go. Finally, after the election, uh, even if this concludes in a clear way, which there's some question about whether that will, disinformation about the vote tallies themselves, disinformation about parties that are working on settling those vote tallies, that sort of thing uh, might not conclude even after election day half. So that's my <laughs> very blunt way of saying Let's stay tuned and stay cautious about what we consume. Unrest might afford the bad guys, the bad faith actors, more opportunities to basically disseminate lies and to pit groups against one another. One thing that comes to my mind, um, and this is just a small example, but it's related to a very pivotal swing state, is that right-wing news outlets are broadcasting in Spanish in Florida. And this is a this is a uh, 21 October New York Times piece that comes to mind highlighting how right-wing Spanish language radio was disseminating suggestions about how Black Lives Matter activists engage in brujeria, witchcraft, which is, I, I don't know where to begin with the claim itself. Those of you gathered here uh, can reasonably understand just how outlandish that is. But knowing that the disinformation is there, knowing that some other folks might either not have access to information or might not be as frequent consumers of news as ourselves, serves as a good reminder that, that we have to be vigilant. Now that I've spent part one uh, preaching to the choir, so to speak, about election season, I do want to go ahead and move on to the longer term, which concerns me. As a little bit of background to the background, when I was just sort of a, a, a budding political science nerd back in my undergraduate days, I decided to go ahead and uh, delve into Japanese studies and, and really focused a lot of my undergraduate studies on wartime, World War II era relations between the United States and Japan. You think, well, that's pretty straightforward. That means we were in war. Uh, what else is there to del delve into? However, one of the things I wanted to search for uh, goes back to periods that, that lead up to the war and sort of set a background for politics in Japan. The Meiji Restoration in the late 19th century, efforts for Japan to modernize itself, borrow industrial brewing, cultural knowledge from various other parts of the world uh, were a reflection of Japan's efforts to take in information and sort of make itself fit in in a way that was uniquely Japanese. 
So on its own, pretty, pretty neat and interesting. But because of the militarized elements of that society going further into the 20th century, and the fact that you had debates over naval supremacy and, and how large of a navy they could have versus other countries, uh, among a whole host of other problems. With Japan, you saw an increasing sort of networking of different forces, such as those who would corrupt religion to serve the state, certain right-wing influences or nationalist influences, if you will, within the state who wanted that support. You had strike-breaking forces, nationalistic military leaders, all wanting to work together in their own way, uh, as well as with some organized crime elements, so that you had a, a sort of threat environment that took this modernization and turned it into something far more ha- harmful. So when it comes to the rise of authoritarianism, there, there are certain things with the perversion of, of religious faith, the condemnation of those who have no religious faith or have more uh, sort of skeptical views of government, these things that come into play. These things that come into play uh, sort of highlight parallels that, that do give me pause. I'm not the first person to say them. I'm certainly not an expert in them, but that, that's sort of the backdrops. When I think about white supremacy and nationalism in our own institutions, some of it might just be a natural tendency to distrust organizations, entities, people that we see as the other. But there are also people such as uh, the white moderate. Uh, I'm drawing on the language of Dr. King here, who might be perfectly well-meaning people in their own right, but don't necessarily understand that that they are giving tacit approval through inaction uh, for their institutions to be taken over by more nationalistic individuals. As a shout out to the threat intelligence community, I also do think that especially because disinformation, hacking, uh, hack and leak operations, because they can play such a pivotal role, especially during election seasons or other major political processes, we've got a role to play in calling out harmful uh, misanthropic behaviors that, that, that threaten to upend democracy. I'd also say that institutions and independent groups seem to be particularly involved online for targeting the black community, for targeting their allies, for targeting peaceful uh, protesters. So when you see people get doxxed, when you see people who run online forums or are mouthpieces via their Twitter profile saying, hey, I've identified this cop getting shot, but then provide it and then get others to amplify it without much context. Well, you can see signs that the environment, the information environment that we're exposed to is ripe for threats like these. And I see things like this uh, persisting beyond election season, even if we do get a chance to reverse more authoritarian behaviors in our government, that doesn't mean that these forces automatically go away. So again, I, one other thing I would highlight based on some of the, the, the worries and, and things and parallels that I've seen in my own studies is that the conversions between institutions and independent threat actors are things that we need to, need to go ahead and fight. Whether that's law enforcement and government agencies or other organizations, groups like the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, which is a silly sounding name as it is, um, they are active. Uh, Patriots Prayer is another one that comes to mind with regard to the behaviors that they've exhibited in Oregon. Groups like the ones that I've just cited also have already exhibited an ability to conduct false flag activity that takes advantage of peaceful protests, of our civil efforts to go ahead and hold law enforcement accountable for when they, they violate our, our promises to us to protect and serve. Um, things like firing at or destroying uh, a Minneapolis precinct um, and claiming that you're doing so on behalf of George Floyd or, or whoever, um, those things have been used in bad faith. Groups like the Boogaloo Boys, Proud Boys, distribute this information uh, using various online forums. Sometimes they get deplatformed. Sometimes they'll find alternative platforms known as Gab or whatever it might, whatever might be the next one to go ahead and distribute this information. Another thing that I, I want to highlight, using the example of the, uh, the neo-Nazi uh, publication, The Daily Stormer, 
one thing they, they really uh, help to push is trolling language that, that is misleading. And perhaps they're acting as if they're saying certain slurs, certain dehumanizing language in an ironic way. The fact of the matter is that's meant as sort of a cover. I'm not saying that this is a technique specific to any one group or that it's going to follow a certain playbook every single time, but it's a feature. And it's also something that as we engage in the political process or engage in activism, it's something we need to watch out for. Additionally, demanding more from law enforcement, cutting through the opacity of uh, their own self-imposed accountability processes, that's important. It's hard to attribute and identify this harmful activity, this criminal activity in collaboration or linkages with extremists if you cannot get to the facts. The white nationalist violence that we saw and the murders that we saw in Kenosha speak to this. Moving on to state institutions themselves and getting beyond some of the high-level examples related to non-state actors, there are, are, are some other things to worry about with regard to understanding the threat. There are two general outcomes, and again, I'll be very careful, but two general outcomes I think that, that we might, or themes perhaps, that we could see this November. Entrenchment of some of the things that we've seen in government, as well as backlash against people who have been critic, critics of law enforcement, uh, critics of how we enforce our immigration laws. Um, I, I, I think there's some reason to suspect a bit of backlash there. Alternatively, there might be a chance to undo these things, but it also needs to be more than just undoing damage and say, hey, look at what a good job we did. Changes as well to the federal government that involved executive orders on rolling back the teaching of critical race theory, sensitivity training, changes in how uh, certain civil appointees or, or civil uh, members of the federal government uh, may allow, at least in the eyes of more concerned parties, the chance for for people who who help to propagate opposition to critical race theory. It might allow for them to become more embedded in our civil service. Government errors, even when committed in the interest of undoing damage or more good faith policies that serve all communities, they might be treated as scandal. Online bad faith entities might look for the opportunity to disrupt whether a government is trying to reform and promulgate changes, or whether that's something that we want to push for ourselves as activists, protesters, or whether there's a legislative process. And well-meaning leadership might always mean supportive leadership. I, I make this as no specific partisan criticism, but I do think that when you're given a choice between the status quo and someone seeking to challenge it, it might be helpful to be able to say, okay, if you're challenging the status quo, what's your alternative? We know what you're against, but we need you to articulate what you're for. And I'd say to myself as an ally and to any other allies, wow, excuse me, to any other allies gathered on the call, that's a challenge we should impose upon ourselves too. Next steps, solutions. With deplatforming, that's a little more technical and I think it might have a limited impact. To get into the tech end for a moment, if you disable a botnet, for example, put together by malware, there's a chance that threat actors, cyber criminals have emailed that malware or shared it otherwise. And if it's been distributed, you know, deplatforming or deconstructing something doesn't mean it's not going to rear its head elsewhere. Nevertheless, it is worth giving it a shot. This is a discussion point that I want to revisit for those of you keeping score at home. Publicly calling out white supremacy and nationalism in American institutions, that's something to do. But it's harder to say how we should do it and what's the best way to do it. And what institutions do we tear down, reform, build anew? I'm reminded of many of the calls to abolish ICE, given the fact that there are still numerous children that are, have been separated from their families. This form of cruelty uh, is something that needs to be addressed. Institutional reform is necessary, in my personal opinion. But how we change institutions to make sure that this happens never again, that's important. Policies that serve the Black community, Latinx community. 
communities of color overall, those serve the common interest. Uh, that's perhaps more of an admonition, again, for allies or, or aspiring allies like myself. And we also need to know where we're going to come up short. We need to talk about issues of relevance to all communities and women of color. And it's not solely about policing. I was horrified to see that during one of the first presidential debates, issues related to race in America were framed in a subtitle that also talked about violence in our cities. That was a very reductive point of view to offer. And uh, I was ashamed to see it. Those who want to be allies, however, and I'll blame myself as well, we can get this wrong quite a bit. But we also need to look at economic rights, environmental rights, where people are allowed to live, whether that place is going to be safe in terms of having a home, having drinking water, and having so much more. Healthcare rights, that's another thing that quite frankly means not just having access, but what kind of quality of treatment are you going to get? Are you going to be listened to less well just because, for example, you're a black woman versus, you know, me, Joe Sixpack, the, you know, the white guy who's never had to deal with these issues. Finally, let's get to some discussion points. Some themes that I wanted to highlight here, but, you know, if folks want to go uh, in different directions, I am entirely uh, welcoming of it. How do we organize? Written work on this effort uh, going into January 2021 and beyond, I think is necessary. Even if we don't necessarily have the chance for the most sympathetic years to be elected, and I hope that that's not the case, I think preparing a slate of actions for January 2021 and beyond is a good starting place. Identifying our allies, I know that that is a work that uh, Ambassador Jenkins has has been awesome at highlighting uh, via the listserv, but highlighting our allies, highlighting what groups, that's important. And then I think going a step beyond and identifying potential pressure points in federal government and legislatures, state and local, the tech sector, whether it is talking about pressuring legislators, politely but firmly, or whether it's about recruiting allies, um, this is something that, that I think deserves some brainstorming. And obviously, knowing that we've got, I see is 26 minutes left, uh, we might not be able to solve the whole thing here. But this offers us a starting place, in my opinion. So with that, and including uh, feedback on, on how I frame things, I, I Absolutely welcome criticism. Uh, certainly not allergic to it. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts. So with that, I will shut up and uh, let you folks go ahead and speak up. I am going to uh, actually stop the broadcast so we can just stick to the audio component now. Awesome. Sean, thank you so, so much for the very informative discussion and presentation. Really appreciate it. Um, so I want to open up the floor and ask uh, if anyone has any questions or thoughts and comments um, based on what Sean shared. Hi. I have a couple of questions. My name is Erica Banuelos. I'm based here in Harlem. I'm a graduate student at SIPA, Columbia SIPA, where I'm studying cybersecurity policy. My first question to you, Sean, again, thanks so much for being here with us, is you mentioned that labeling, um, the what the tech companies are doing with their platforms in terms of labeling state actors that, may be re that are responsible for particular posts for example, on Facebook, is a band-aid solution that may be inadvertently causing problems. Could you describe exactly what you mean with that statement? So I, I may be conflating a few things, but uh, one of the things that comes to mind is that if you have a platform like Twitter, for example, and you're labeling a statement from the president, and it, it happens to be a factually misleading one, one thing is, I, I think I don't think this should dissuade you from action if you're running the platform or participating in it. But when you label, say, a misleading statement, a harmfully misleading one, say that this is disinformation or that this is inaccurate, and hey, uh, since it's related to the election, here's accurate information on the election. I, I take that over nothing. But at the same time, I would say we have to account for the potential backlash from people who are used to amplifying it unabated. I, I, again, POTUS is, is perhaps the most prominent example that comes to my mind. 
And I do, this is only my personal opinion here. I, I do think that there is the risk of what I refer to as the Barbara Streisand effect. I, I forget the exact um, event or ongoing issue in the press, but uh, the, the famous talent Barbara Streisand uh, said that she wanted certain, did not want certain information being reported on uh, about her in the press. And this was years ago. So I'm, I'm doing a very bad job uh, describing it, but it's called this because I think that information ended up arguably getting more attention. Uh, we can call it what we'd like. And, and I frankly should perhaps be using a better and more up-to-date term. Bottom line is, I think that there's got to be more done than just labeling stuff or saying, okay, hey, yeah, we're still going to publish this, but by the way, this might not be the best piece of info. It, it just, it feels like a surface level response to a much more deep-seated problem. Awesome. Thank you. I think partially why I'm asking you that question is because I'm, I'm taking this class called Policy Solutions for Misinformation. And, you know, a lot of it is spent focusing on the problems. And so, of course, I think everyone feels a frustration of like, what are some tangible solutions that we can implement? Like, what does this look like, like on a technical scale? And so um, that's where my interest for that question came up. And very quickly, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned one of the solutions being ensuring that we are teaching critical race theory in classrooms. Act the commissioner of um, one of the commissioners of the Cyberspace Solarium project, Susan Spalding, she mentioned that one of the, the solutions would be to ensure that students have you know, access to civic education. And I'm wondering if you could expand more on that just because I feel like in the past several years, being from Arizona, I think, I don't remember how long ago this occurred, but there were a lot of issues with trying to bring about Chicano or, or Hispanic studies to particular universities or, or schools. Um, and so I feel like this is such a contentious issue. And just the idea of trying to enact this in classrooms across the country, uh, I just don't know, it makes me a little nervous. And so like, what's the first step to ensuring that we can actually start doing this? I'm guessing the first step is a difficult one. I think part of it, unfortunately, depending on where you're positioned, some of it's out of our hands. Some of it means that you have to have a willingness to confront. And unfortunately, I, I, my tendency, my own biased view is that white guys like me have to do a heck of a lot more uh, to have the uncomfortable to have the uncomfortable conversation that, hey, critical race theory is not about uh, <laughs> teaching other people who who just look like me that that we are. Um, inherently evil. I, I think critical race theory is in part just a, a much more historically complete effort to get us to account for past injustices. And quite frankly, when I hear about uh, more powerful parties in government or in the private sector, in the press, uh, in entertainment, who decry things like the 1619 Project and that it undermines American greatness, it it offends me to no end because I, I take more, not, not a, a right-wing populist view, but a more, a different kind of populist view in that when you hear folks that are particularly powerful and money touting that point of view, that things like the 1619 Project or even just simple webinars on sensitivity training, when those are, are meant to undermine how you feel about your country, how you feel about yourself, or for me, for example, as a white person. Yeah, it concerns me because I see those same parties, those same uh, factions in society wanting to disadvantage uh, 
working class individuals wanting to uh, shore up patriarchy and ultimately ends up, it ends up hurting black folks, Hispanic folks, Asian Pacific Islander folks, and white people like me uh, quite a bit. So I, I think uh, getting beyond that, that more self-centered, and I apologize for being that self-centered in my initial part of the response. I, I think taking a step out from your usual routine and sharing with someone who might be on the fence about this stuff, say, hey, here's what it means to me. And it's, it's tough to have those conversations in the most productive way. But I, I just personally think that we can have them and have them be pretty blunt without any of those fairly being characterized as an attack. I just think being honest and saying, hey, if there is a university program that I can build up or a grad program or a seminar or something at work, or even if it's a water cooler conversation, there are ways to share this and say, hey, this is why I support this. And here's where I come from. You know, it's, it, this is fundamentally about equity. It's not about oppression. It's about resolving oppression. And, uh, you know, I think that that uh, the underlying message behind critical race theory is that um, there are past injustices to account for. And even if it's painful, I think the outcome over the long term is far better for us all. Thank you. And if anyone else has any other any ideas or anything to they want to share, you know, please feel free to message me or we can set up a time to chat. too. thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Right. Anybody else? Hi, uh, Sean. This is Alma Maria Renaz. First of all, I want to thank you for sharing with us this information. And I also want to uh, thank WCAPS for putting this together. It was, I got the email and I was like, yes, I need to jump onto this right away because I'm, I'm, I identify as queer, but I'm also Latina. And I have, one of the struggles that I have encountered within my own community are this subset of Latinx or Latino uh, individuals who are very much, I see as identifying as white supremacists. And I have, it's been a real struggle for me. I'm trying to find like a middle ground on how to relate to them and what I have ended up deciding to do over the past few months is just pull away. These are people that I've had friendships with in the past. This is very much on a personal level. And I see that it's not just something that I've experienced. I've seen some reporting on, um, for example, in uh, Miami, we have, I saw a report, uh, it was, I think it was Vice that did a report on this, of these groups of uh, people who mainly men of a certain age who are very much against what they they call socialism and progressive the progressive left and they seem to very much be along with um the values of white supremacy so i don't know if this is more like you know i think this is me asking one, if anyone else has experienced that as somebody who identifies as a person of color, uh, if they have, how have they dealt with it? And secondly, any um, advice that perhaps we could share together on how to deal with those situations? So I think oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I can relate to some extent. I'm a woman of color. I'm adopted from China and my parents are both white. And I grew up in a town of 1,400 
people, predominantly white area in rural Kansas. So you can imagine it was kind of, it was a journey to get there. But um, for me, at least with my journey in that, my father is a Trump supporter, not a white nationalist, but seeing how that is a very easy segue to lead to white nationalism and how, at least in my community, that I'm aware of that no one identifies as a white nationalist, but they are in this gray area where like they won't identify as this because it's identified as bad, but they still hold the same beliefs. And so at least in my research and what I've looked into is focusing on the identity and how the identity and building community um, aspect of white nationalism of identifying who's really a threat and who is just pure ignorance and can kind of get pulled out of it. Um, I shared in the chat a podcast called um, Rabbit Hole, and I've just started listening to it. And a tech columnist who talks about how um, this kid in college, I'm assuming it's a similar demographic to what you were talking about, Alma, but um, it was about a student who met like a certain age demographic and how he got sucked into white nationalist conspiracy, QAnon, Chan, and all that stuff. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but I just kind of wanted to chime in and reiterate that you're definitely not alone in dealing with people in your community having those kind of beliefs. Thanks, Catherine. And, and it, for me, it feels almost like a betrayal because um, coming from a Latino background and my particular, what makes me Latina is my mom's Mexican. And so to hear people who their grandparents or their parents immigrated to the United States talk about those people on the border and like use those terms, it's just the cognitive dissonance is just, it, it, it seems so outright to me, but um, for some reason it, it's okay for them to to say, to take this mentality of us versus them. You know, they're the ones that are wrong. We're okay be, well, because we're here. And um, if anyone else is anything else, like I could really. Yeah, this, uh, again, um, I, I really appreciate the input here because I, I myself, I, I'm, I'm careful to articulate these things because again, coming from the white guy's perspective, obviously I, I see it first and foremost among people that I've known Although, uh, jokingly, perhaps when I, I had more uh, moderate center-left attitudes, I, I was fortunate enough to come from a family where my, my father, when he uh, first met my wife, he said, oh, I see you met the right-wing member of the family in reference to me. <laughs> so, that's, that's shifted, of course, over the years, thank goodness. But uh, I, it, it's easy, again, citing the social media examples to see folks that will uh, perhaps use their presence in a certain community to then go ahead and paper over the inherent ugliness, uh, violent right-wing organizing to go ahead and attack uh, protesters to say that everything that bad, everything that that happens that's violent in a city means that oh well, cops are victims, and you know this is the work of immigrants, or this is anti, this is that. Not to mention, by the way, that that inherent in those criticisms, you also do see that language that that just completely ignores the premise, or, or just completely glosses right over some other premises that they, they imply about being anti-fascist or being an immigrant is either lower class or wrong or otherwise undesirable. 
So yeah, it's, I, I absolutely see that it's not just white folks participating in white supremacy. It takes all kinds to go ahead and fuel uh, negative power structures as well as uh, the positive power structures that we're trying to, to use to counter um, these bad things. So I, I would say that I see it. And when I see examples, I, I'm going to be I'm going to be careful not to name names, but I, I noting that you have some folks that are treated as either uh, borderline legit investigative journalists that that use their background to that as sort of a weapon. I also know that there are people that that there is basically a a, a rainbow coalition in waiting uh, of people who want to challenge this. And I apologize if that termination is uh, pretty dated. I, I, it just it's what I think of, and I do think that it's we can defeat it, but. Part of that is white aspiring allies like me showing up after election season, like right away, um, as well as us being held accountable and us being willed to be, uh, willing to be held accountable. I don't know if that helps, but uh, happy, to, <laughs> happy to take further criticism on that. I, Sean, we definitely, I mean, we need all the allies we can get. <laughs> so we're all just a, a work in progress. I really appreciate I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll say just, just to conclude here, I, I'm tipping my hand a little bit and I still don't believe it's the full answer, but fighting disinformation, for example, um, through deplatforming, as well as organizing with sort of an equal and opposite message, message of inclusion, that's a good thing. And also inciting, going ahead and, and citing examples as to how you know, having an inclusive workplace, having an inclusive society, neighborhood, housing policies, you name it, better inclusive healthcare, how all of these things benefit us all. Highlighting key examples as, that, as to how that makes for a healthier, more prosperous society, that's a good thing. And when people complain about the progressive left or about socialism, one thing I've seen kicked around social media quite a bit in response to that has been an old quote from Harry Truman, you know, and I, I realized the quoting uh, a white president from 60 years ago. Uh, 60, 70 years ago is, uh, comes with its own uh, baggage. But noting that socialism is, is the term that critics use to throw at anything that resembles human progress, that, that's, you know, that, that's a refrain and that's a part of our political DNA. And it's quite silly. My response to that response also is that you know, when people, uh, I, I think reasonable people can disagree about policies and about what label you want to carry. But democratic socialism prioritizes people over markets, at least if we uh, are to try and execute it correctly. And it does not prioritize one race over another. I think that's, that's one of the advantages there. And that's, that's why I, I personally believe in a, in a philosophy that's, that's more aligned with that, even if it doesn't have the same label. Sean, quick question. I heard you mentioned the word deplatforming a few times. I've never heard of that term. Could you go into a bit more detail? Sure. So in this case, uh, one great example, um, or perhaps one low light example would be uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. So sort of a, a bit of a provocateur who has gone to different college campuses, get different venues and, and spoke. He, he's sort of a, a contrarian uh, so-called free speech activist. But again, this goes to the paradox of tolerance. You know, if, if you are so tolerant as to open uh, the comments to someone who says that even even as a, a, a LGBT person himself, that, oh, you know, homophobia is okay. Saying uh, certain slurs toward gay people or toward this group of that is okay. Oh, and by the way, I just said this racist thing. That's free speech. This is an individual who just is one, one example, one example where it was so egregious that, that enough folks had said, all right, this is enough. He's calling out people who are getting death threats. He's using 
dehumanizing language. We need to see to it that he is banned from Twitter so that he does not have this website as a bullhorn. Same thing with Facebook. That doesn't mean they all go away. You know, People can have burner accounts. People can organize through other means and other forums. But deplatforming does help to weaken uh, our particularly pernicious message like that. My only sort of exception point to this is uh, once that happens, uh, we aren't done. There's always going to be other folks that, that are seeking to cause trouble. We just have to make it as difficult as possible for, for people to, to hide behind a free speech banner to, to go ahead and, and uh, put people in danger. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? I have a question um, following up with the deplatforming. Do you think that deplatforming users could potentially exacerbate violence? Because there might be a feeling of my right is being taken away, even if it's being explained to me, I might not necessarily agree with it. Therefore, there might be an increase in violence and like taking action. That's a great question. I I think on balance, there is some risk that it can be used that way and perhaps effectively. Um, It depends on how um, that individual, it depends on how that, that individual amplifies such a message. But I think on balance, taking away some ability to go ahead and amplify a message of violence now and into the future outweighs them using alternative means to say, hey, I got kicked out of this particular part of the internet commons. Let's let's go get so-and-so. So for me, I, I think that I think that it is it is not worth caving into those threats and concern and potential concern trolling about this point. Because I, I think that you can always say, hey, well, you you need to watch out for what we're going to do to you if you actually stand up for this point of view. Because what this is, is actually standing up for, for something so fundamental and not just any point of view. It's, it's inherently, hey, let's, let's go ahead and protect civil society. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I have one more kind of follow-up question with that too. How do you, I guess, what would you suggest with potentially deplatforming social media influencers that are conflict drivers um, to white nationalism, like um, PewDiePie, for example? Yeah, uh, that's a great example. So mm-hmm. it's a tough one because, uh, again, I, I think some of these platforms, Spotify to me is another good example, or it's close enough where, hey, this guy's driving a lot of hits, a lot of content, a lot of views. Uh, if we just turn the other way, I think we'll be okay. So I don't, I, I think it's worth calling out repeatedly uh, the naming and shaming aspect. It's worth calling out that there's a little bit of hypocrisy or a lot. Uh, with regard to putting the dollar over just the actual rules. And with PewDiePie as one example, that, that's kind of an example. I, I, and I have to apologize. I'm not up to date on the latest that, that he has been involved with, but I suspect, uh, based on this question, that he's still pretty, pretty active, uh, which, frankly, I'm sorry to hear. <laughs> the last thing I'm referring to is specifically the Christchurch shootings and how um, the shooter had... Ne- well, didn't necessarily follow him, but was inspired by PewDiePie's content and then did the act and wasn't necessarily told to do anything, just did it. So this highlights another issue as well. I increasingly, and unfortunately, under this, this current administration, I've heard use of the term stochastic terrorism, where in response to either a, a prominent social media presence's comments or a prominent uh, public person's comments about a group, a trend, a political faction, that they'll say something vague, like someone needs to go do something about them or, or they're, they're due for a bad time or just saying stuff that's really vague and 
almost cowardly because there is an implied threat, but they're not taking responsibility for it. The next thing you know, you see individuals mailing bombs, uh, engaging in the Christchurch attacks, whatever it might be. I think we need to figure out what what the right balance is, but I'm not, I am less worried about deplatforming as a threat to free speech rights in cases where this this is a reasonably inferred result. You know, I it's it's shameful and it, it's something that needs to be be addressed. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Anybody else? So noting that we're at 1.30, I think we're at a good place to conclude. But uh, one thing I would urge you folks to do is if anybody has a question for me, just please uh, feel free to email me. There's obviously a more technical side to this discussion. There's also more of an activism policymaking side to this discussion. And this was, of course, intended to be very high level. So I want to thank you very much for your questions and your time, as well as... Can we get your email again, please? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That, that would make a lot of sense instead of me just talking about it. Here we go. So with that, this should go to the whole group here. Sean, again, thanks so much for the presentation and, um, and engaging with the members. Really, really do appreciate that. Um, so if there's nothing else, um, want to say thank you everyone for joining us. And uh, we look forward to providing this video at a, a later point for uh, your viewing as well as for others viewing. But thank you again for joining us. Really appreciate it and have a great one. Thank you so much, Sean. Absolutely. Thanks all. Thank you.